Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. One big recent development in the basic income space was the release of a new book, Give People Money, How a Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World, is a new book from Annie Lowry. Now, we've had Annie on in the past talking about some of the journalistic work that she did around the Give Directly experiments in Kenya. But this book is making quite a splash, and we thought it might make sense to talk to her again and hear a bit more about her experience with that and what thinking went into it. So here for the second time on the podcast is Annie Lowry. She's a contributing editor at The Atlantic and author of Give People Money. Welcome, Annie. Thanks so much for having me back, guys. Oh, yes, I should mention you are, I think, our first repeat guest ever on the podcast. That's kind of cool, too. I am honored. (laughs) Uh, So by writing this book, you are now very publicly identified with the basic income movement. What made you decide to throw your full weight behind basic income? So I think it's, you know, and and as you guys know, and, and folks who read the book, although I feel like the listeners of your podcast are, are so probably deep in the weeds on this stuff that, you know, uh, not too much you can possibly tell them about it. But um, there had been a number of things that were written about basic income from an argued perspective. So people who were really concerned about technological unemployment, really concerned about kind of, you know, stronger anti-poverty measures or looking at it from a green perspective or even like a philosophical perspective. And so the idea was to do kind of a journalistic look um, for folks who maybe had heard of it but didn't know much about it, maybe had never heard of it. So to kind of write for a more generalized audience. And, you know, as you guys know, and have covered extensively, there's just so much interest. And I feel like it's like every day or every week you hear about a new proposal, a new pilot, something going forward. And so it just feels like there's just so much momentum behind it. And that's a really fun thing. You know, very often economic policy is kind of a really slow burn. And so to see something kind of rapidly developing in this way is is really exciting and, and really fun to watch. So on a, I think, related note, talking about some of the past books that folks have written on basic income, oftentimes the titles are, are a more broad value statement, something like Fair Shot or In Our Hands. And you went very direct, give people money. So I'm curious, yeah. is that, was that tied into thinking about who, who your audience was here? And, and, and yeah, I'm curious what led to that decision. Yeah, I think that there in the United States is um, so much kind of like there's almost like a philosophical objection to this idea that the government should ever just give people money, despite the fact that through how many hundreds of programs, in a lot of cases, that is what it should do or is doing. And despite the evidence that in a lot of cases that that is what it should be doing, um, as opposed to giving them in-kind benefits or... So I feel like it just gets to the argument at the heart of the book, which is that, you know, we have a progressive government that redistributes income. um, But very often we have this kind of, again, sort of like really deep-rooted cultural and philosophical objection to just just giving people cash, um, despite there being such such fantastic evidence on, on how powerful a thing that can be. And it was actually, it was like somebody in my publisher who was like, oh, I like the, you know, the title, Give People Money. It's just sort of like eye-catching because um, we'd gone through a bunch of titles, but that was the one that they felt was sort of like gripping, <laughs> uh, which was, I think, like the literal reason that it got picked. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of how people think about basic income and the, the philosophy behind it, you you obviously know the political landscape around this really well, but I'm wondering if any of reactions to the book have surprised you. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I'd hoped in the book to anticipate a lot of the kind of knee-jerk reactions that people have. So it being too expensive is a pretty central one and one that I think you can you can rebut pretty strongly in the U.S. People really get caught up on that, but just wanted to um, wanted to to get out in front of that one and some of the other ones. You know, the the, the sort of usual suspects about work. Um, about like the idea of getting something for nothing, which I obviously think is is problematic just in its construction. But a lot of the response, I've been really happy. You know, one thing in writing the book was I kind of wanted it to be, instead of sort of an argument, more like a jungle gym where people could come and think and explore and didn't, you know, feel like they were in a position to be persuaded as or not so much as they were there to kind of get their minds expanded. And so it's been nice people, you know, kind of seeing that and, and saying like, this is in some sense a book about basic income, but in a sense really not, right? It's about all of the ideas that kind of intersect with it, which is really what I what I'd, had at least tried to do um, or would, would hope would be true for some readers. I'm curious, as you were painting that picture, were there parts in particular that stood out as being difficult to wrestle with? How, how did you untangle and explain some of the aspects of it that, that might might be a conceptual leap for a lot of folks? Yeah. So, you know, I think if you're thinking about a UBI, you have to go back to the kind of like Kuznets first principles of what gets counted in an economy and what doesn't. And I guess, I mean, this goes back as far as you know, economic research goes back. So you can probably go back, you know, to Adam Smith even, right? Like um, the whole issue of what you're measuring and what you're counting and how that relates to money as opposed to effort or labor. um, I think that that stuff is all super fascinating. And what I think is kind of interesting is you have, you know, economists as a profession who kind of say, we understand that like what you are measuring economically it's not the same as like value in the economy and what's being produced and the importance of the roles that different people are playing. But nevertheless, you actually don't have that much economic research that kind of plays with the boundary of that, like looking at household production and um, looking at what's counted and what isn't. Um, and I think that that's surprising. And I kind of wonder if there isn't just like a lot more interesting work to be done there. Um, and maybe it's, you know, a data limitation thing. Um, but that's just, you know, kind of one example of, of the sort of big ideas that you can kind of get caught up in there. I also think that there's, you know, just a ton of really interesting political economy questions about who counts, who matters, who has political power. Um, a lot about the sort of, you know, one of the issues that I think is really hard here is do you create even more of an us and them dynamic if you have a stronger social safety net? There's a lot of evidence of that, not just from the U.S., but from some of the Nordic countries um, and the way in which they might have become more anti-immigrant or even more nationalist in some cases. So all of that stuff, I think, is is really interesting, and, and UBI is a kind of interesting frame for looking at it. Yeah, so there are a lot of rabbit holes you can jump down when getting into UBI. I'm wondering, because this book is going to be a lot of people's first comprehensive introduction to the topic, what do you think goes into a thoughtful, responsible introduction to basic income? So I feel like, you know, if you sort of just say, look, this is an idea that has been around for a long time, and so many brilliant people have adopted as their own for their own reasons, with their own motivations, that sort of looking at it as being kind of a really fascinating um, but very malleable trend 
And I, I think it's so fascinating that it's just, you know, it's one of these great ideas that on the one hand, it's so simple and so singular. And on the other hand, it's just so malleable. It has such a rich, rich history. It has, you know, even I feel like I'm at least pretty well up to date on a lot of the research, but even I keep on finding things that I had never found. And so it's kind of humbling in that way, right? Like, um, as you point, you know, as you, you were commenting on, right, like there are just so many rabbit holes and there are so many people who put so much thought into it. And so I wanted to kind of capture capture that, right, like um, and highlight a lot of other work and research and all of the thinking that's gone into it. And, you know, it's I think it's probably only been in the last 20, 30 years that you've really had a movement around it, too. And that's that's kind of interesting as well, that you have, you know, people who are straightforwardly advocating it, sometimes for really different reasons, but nevertheless, they're just trying to promote this idea around the world, which is is a really fascinating trend as well. So this has generally been a quite a big month for basic income beyond your book coming out. We also mm-hmm. had President Obama talking about the need to pursue yeah. the policy in his uh, Nelson Mandela lecture. And then Chicago, it, it came out, is, is considering doing a pilot there. So on one hand, we have this movement here. On the other, looking at the federal government, we're clearly a long ways away from seemingly being able to pass much of anything. So I'm curious, from your perspective, how do you, where do you feel like the movement is right now? Like, are, are we close in some ways? Are we far away? Like, do you have thoughts on how we, where we go from here? Close and far away is probably a good way to put it. Um, I think it's going to be really hard. I'm very interested to see how things like Stockton and Chicago and the Y Combinator experiment and others that we're looking at how those, you know, some of the guaranteed and minimum income ideas that are out there, how those play out. But it's, I think it's going to be pretty hard to get kind of convincing evidence on some of this stuff um, without the federal income tax lever, right? Like states have to manage, have to balance their budgets. They just don't have the kind of capacity that the federal government has, But nevertheless, right, like, I I would love it if you could get some kind of laboratory of democracy effect where, you know, you would have something smaller that could scale up that could really convince people it was a good idea. Um, Federally, or, you know, nationally, I guess, to put it in a different way, I do think that you could see a lot of movement towards considering net, like a negative income tax an EITC expansion, a conversion of TANF into a child grant, or some kind of modification and expansion of the child tax credit. That's where I think that it's, you know, it's sort of more marginal policies that are really influenced by the idea of UBI and in some cases have a lot of the same proponents where I think that you could see movement. And so, you know, there's just such excitement on the left for these kind of big blue blue sky ideas. And I think it's, you know, just a matter of time before there's a shift in power and some of them get pushed. And, you know, I, I think there's obviously just so much uncertainty, not just around the midterms, but gosh, who knows what's going to happen in 2020. But I think it's impossible to imagine that whoever is the Democratic candidate is not going to, at the very least, have something something big along these lines, although I'd be very surprised if it was UBI itself. Yeah, it does feel like 
like, you know, whether it's jobs guarantee or at least an EITC expansion, yeah, we're at that point where everyone's going to have something like that in, in their platform, if, you know, in the presidential race. And, and, you know, the thing that I'm actually kind of hopeful for is folks have been pretty tentative about saying we need to do more for the lowest income Americans, right? Like they don't vote. They don't have a ton of political power. You get into this whole thing of like, why would you help somebody who won't work to help themselves, which obviously is a very problematic sentiment, but nevertheless a common one. And, you know, I just have my fingers crossed that you'll move to something like child grants or, again, like the total reform of TANF, which I think would be a really good bang for the buck wise. Um, I'm just not sure that anybody would run on it for, for political reasons. Yeah, I, I guess we'll see. It's Politics seems like a crazy space these days, so I feel like I n- never <laughs> say never anymore, but... Yeah, yeah. seriously. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, you were on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah just recently talking about your book. Congrats on that. Yeah. Uh, and and during you. our conversation, um, one issue that came up was race and what impact that's had on the kind of the history of our social safety net, but also around implications for it going forward. So I'm I'm curious if you want to say a little bit about your perspective on that front. Yeah, absolutely. So I think if you are looking, you know, kind of from the discipline of history or the discipline of sociology or the discipline of economics, it's pretty clear that the reason the United, one of the main reasons, and I think it's one of these things that, that it's perhaps not a sufficient answer, but it's a necessary part of the answer that we don't have the kind of safety net that you would see in in Canada or in other high income, similar high income OECD countries is because of race and racism, right? And how that played out in the construction of the New Deal and Great Society programs. And, you know, I, I do think that that racism explains a lot of the welfare chauvinism that you have in the United States, a lot of the, you know, the kind of judgment of, of lower income folks. And obviously, I think that that UBI pushes really hard in the other direction and basically says, like, no, you know, to the extent that you're means testing anything, you know, you just want this to be about poverty, right? Like, you don't want this to be about work effort or anything else, you know, if you're thinking about a minimum income or even some kind of loose means testing, which is, you know, perhaps not a pure UBI, but but that's the idea. And so, you know, I think that, that on the one hand, it would be good as a policy not to kind of remedy the injustices of the past or, you know, uh, obviously UBI wouldn't touch wealth inequality, um, the racial wealth gap, which is a really pernicious problem. But it would probably be more fair and less racist going forward, right? Like eliminating a lot of the requirements that you have in TANF and SNAP and converting to just a basic cash transfer program. But I do, you know, you have this really fascinating thing happening where the Republican Party is becoming older and whiter and more male um, and retaining power, outsized power. And you have, you know, a Democratic Party that is becoming younger, more diverse, in some cases more female, at least among white folks. And, you know, I just think that that it's really uncertain how that is going to play out. But the polarization is kind of a a frightening thing. And and I think that you're going to see entrenchment on both sides. And, you know, I was just reading Amy Chua's book, which um, touches a lot on on this. And it's just, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a really difficult thing as as the United States is going through, in some ways, a, a legitimately pretty quick demographic, pretty sudden demographic change, um, how that's going to affect, you know, 
what policies become popular among whom um, and what things sort of like raise the hackles and the tribalism of the other side. Yeah, it's harrowing to think about sometimes. I'm wondering if you see any other major challenges. I mean, obviously, there's there's more than a few, but in terms of you know, actually seeing basic income as a federal program or a, a robust state program, do you see any other major hurdles? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think that there's probably opportunities that we're not thinking about. So, you know, say some state got a waiver to take its TANF program and turn it into a cash grant for kids. Nothing's stopping that happening. Um, my understanding is that the waivers for TANF are pretty, you know, nobody's talking about that, but that would that would be a pretty cool way to do things and maybe a way to kickstart the conversation. Also, you know, going forward, I think it's going to be interesting to see how much, especially, you know, progressives and liberals feel hemmed in by government spending in the safety net, right? Like, you know, whether they feel like they they need to be the stewards of fiscal responsibility and cut spending while they're also raising taxes. You know, I think that that's a big kind of question mark. But certainly, I think it's sort of an exciting time in which the, the Overton window has really been thrown open. And so I wouldn't be surprised to just see, you know, kind of like exciting and more expansive policymaking in the future. And, and I really hope that, you know, just getting a bigger sense of what, what's possible and what the government and, you know, society by extension could be doing. Um, you know, I think that the other thing is, say, imagine that in the next recession, there's a recession, we're recovering, and GDP is growing and productivity is increasing, but the unemployment rate isn't going down or even is going up. Um, I think it's that kind of the cocktail of those three things, right? So productivity increasing, GDP increasing, and unemployment increasing, that that would be, I think, a pretty powerful trigger to say, oh, man, like technology is changing our economy in a way that's really frightening. Like, let's start thinking about about how we want to help people through that. So I think it's just something to keep an eye on. Who knows if and when that might happen, but I think that that could really change the political conversation pretty quickly. That was Annie Lowry, contributing editor at The Atlantic and author of Give People Money, How a Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World. So I was really curious to hear from Annie as to what her motivations were around publishing a new book in this space. And I thought her point about bringing a journalistic perspective to this made a ton of sense because, as we talked about, if you look at the other books in space, there's there's a decent number out there at this point, but they do come at it from these different perspectives that, that inherently bring this lens, and that affects how people perceive it. It affects who decides to read it. So by taking this new approach, it, it opens up the potential that this might reach potentially quite significant new audience. Yeah, I agree. And it, it may reach a more, hopefully an academic crowd, but also a more popular audience, just because she does have that cachet as, as a well-known economic journalist. And, and she gets into stuff that are sort of a bit more wheezy, like turning TANF into a cash grant. And we should say TANF is um, the... Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. Temporary, yeah, I was having trouble with the T. The <laughs> temporary Assistance for Needy Families. Um, or expanding the EITC, which is, of course is what uh, Chris Hughes is calling for and is you know maybe has a bit more momentum than UBI in terms of something that could happen sooner. Uh, but yeah, it's just good to get her perspective because it is very grounded in, in the data and the policy. I thought it was also interesting and compelling to see how much of her perspective is informed by historical precedent. 
that she's really thinking thinking about what's happened in the past, what has led us up to this moment, and what implications that has going forward. Because I think often, particularly when people talk about EBI in, in the context of technology changing work, there is a tendency to just look at the system today and then extrapolate forward from there, as opposed to saying, well, let's actually take the whole picture, let's say, like, how have things changed over past decades? And then given this moment, what do we think will actually happen going forward? Right. And we asked her about, uh, you know, her, her book is just, it's called Give People Money as opposed to some sort of value statement. But I feel like if you follow economics far enough, it, it is, you know, based on value statements. And it was interesting to hear her unpack that a little bit in terms of the the values in terms of what we call work and what we call labor and what what's compensated and what's not and obviously that you know kind of goes back a, at least a few hundred years if not a few thousand yeah well it's exciting to see how much traction this is getting so far and then the media pick up so hopefully, yeah. hopefully this this keeps momentum building yeah yeah more dominoes are falling All right, that'll do it for this week on the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. Please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or the service of your choice. And tell your friends. We're always looking for new listeners and more people in this conversation. And we'll see you next week. 